We've been exploring for the last few weeks the book of 1 Peter, and we're exploring how God takes that which is common, us, and makes us holy. Now, as we've explored this, we've, we've discovered that God says that if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you are a saint. Not because you've done great things, there may not be any miracles accounted to your name, but you are a saint because God has set you apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. That he has placed a call upon your life and upon my life that is, is his alone for his purpose and for his honor. And we've discovered a few things in, in the last couple weeks that I just want to go over very quickly before we begin to explore this new passage And the first one is that all Scripture ultimately points to a person. When you come to this book, the Bible, we need to think of it not as history or poetry or literature, but that it is a living autobiography of Jesus Christ. It is His message showing us who He is and what He wants to do in your life and in my life and His plan and His purpose here in this world. It is incredible. And as we read again this morning, he invites us to desire more of him. The challenge that we have, quite honestly, is not that we desire too much. If you, this morning, are dissatisfied in your heart and your life, if you're thinking that there is more and something is missing, my challenge to you, as we said last week, is to desire more of God. He says, Peter says in in the word here, As newborn babes desire the sincere spiritual milk. Now, I want to just visit that for a second. Remember what newborn babies are like, okay? When they desire something, you know it. Everybody in the house knows it. In fact, everybody in your building knows it. Some people across the street know that they desire some milk because they put everything they are into that cry of hunger. That is what God is inviting you and I to desire him with, with that kind of heart and that kind of passion. And when you do, what is beautiful is he meets that desire in ways you could never, ever have imagined when we taste and see that he is good. So desire more. With that in mind, we come to these new verses that we're beginning to explore. And he says in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now that's what we're going to focus in mostly today. And I'm going to give you a heads up. I will not get through half of what is in your sermon notes. So don't get nervous when it gets close to when you're really getting hungry and, and you're desiring more of God or lunch, one of the two, Um, and I haven't gone through it, and you're going, man, is he ever going to be done? Eventually. I will be. I promise. Here's what he says, though. As you come to him. Now, this phrase, when you look at it in the original language, it it, it comes off with a little bit different feel, because it's not simply a one-time thing. It is an ongoing pursuit In fact, in the original language, it's the same word that would be used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for coming into the temple of God for worship, to meet in his presence. 
And it's something where you would do it on an ongoing basis, repeatedly. It's not just a one-time thing. It doesn't just refer to coming to Jesus for salvation. It is an invitation to come into the very holy of holies and dwell in his presence. And he's saying, as you come to him with that kind of heart, you're coming to a living stone. Now, we're going to explore what that means because that is rich in its, in its imagery throughout the scripture. But here's the great thing about God. Because God is infinite, you can always draw closer. There will never be a moment when you have arrived. And now, if that seems disappointing to you, it shouldn't be. Because what it's saying is there is more to experience of his presence. There is more of his love to encounter. There is more of his greatness to see. There is more of his heart and his passion for you to overwhelm your soul. He is infinite. There's always more and more and more of God to encounter. And one of the images that the scripture uses that is beautiful about our relationship with Christ is the picture of marriage. And let me tell you something, after almost, well, after 34 years of marriage, I can, I can tell you that marriage gets better and better and better. And what you discover that even though you know a lot about one another, you know all their little quirks. My wife knows all the crazy, weird things that I do. She can finish most of my sentences. She can probably preach better than I can too, but because uh, she knows all my sermons. So, but there is more to discover in our relationship because the picture in the scripture is that of continually becoming more and more one. And that's what God is inviting us as followers of him to do as well to become more and more one with Jesus Christ. He gives us his word, he gives us his Holy Spirit, and he invites us to continually come into his presence. So with that in mind, he's saying, don't settle for just a little bit of God. Want more of him and keep coming. And as you come, you're coming to a living stone that you can build every aspect of your life upon. Now, he uses that phrase, the living stone, and he's actually picking up on a pattern that occurs um, two other times already in these introductory verses here in 1 Peter's letter. He mentions three living illustrations that are all about Jesus Christ, and every one of them is incredibly significant to your life and my life. They are practical, and they are theological. They tell us about God. He tells us three things. He says, that there is a living hope that is Jesus. Secondly, there is the living word, which is Jesus. And there is a living stone, which is Jesus. All three of these are incredibly important to our life. And he begins back in, in verses three and four of chapter one with talking about this living hope. We are born again to a living hope. Look what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The reason why we have hope, 
The reason why we can gather together and sing the songs that we sing is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And no one else has ever done that. No one else was raised from the dead by God proving that he had paid the penalty of sin and offers you and I eternal life. We're going to celebrate that in, in, uh, on Easter in, in a couple of weeks, but we need to remember we have a living hope. It's not just a religion. It's not rituals that we practice. We have a living hope of a living God who proved his greatness by raising from the dead. He is our living hope who gives us spiritual life. In Christ, because he is victorious over that, we have nothing to fear. Death cannot destroy us. Sin cannot overcome us. Evil cannot harm us. We are born again in Jesus to a living hope and a living promise of sharing in Jesus' inheritance that can never die never fade, but is secured in heaven in Christ for us. That is a great hope. We have nothing to fear. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that continually because I forget that truth. I begin to have my heart grow small when I look at the circumstances around me, when we face financial difficulty, when we face relational strife, when we're struggling with insecurity and significance in ourselves, we forget we have a great living hope that conquers every need humanity could ever have. We come because we are born again to a living hope. Secondly, Peter reminds us of of another living reality, and that is the living word. Look now towards the end of chapter one at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Again, it's something that's, that's alive through the living and abiding word of God. What brings us life is God's word. Jesus, the living word, he is the living revelation of the person of Jesus Christ who came to show us the Father. And it is here in the scripture. This is why the Bible should be a treasure for us. We should want to spend time in it. And if we begin to think that we know it, you are in great spiritual danger. Because that is the enemy trying to rob you of the revelation of who God truly is. This is what happened to the religious leaders, to the scribes, to the Pharisees, even to the high priests in Jesus' day. They had great familiarity with the text of the word, but they knew very little of its author. They knew the commandments, but they refused to come to the author for life. You and I can face the same danger if we take God's word for granted and we forget that it is his holy revelation of who he is, meant to draw us closer and closer. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is his living autobiography. That's why I challenged you last week to, to look at Psalm 119, look for promises, look for desires, 
Because that whole psalm, all 176 verses, is about the goodness and greatness and the practicality of God's word in your life and in my life. Learn to love it, to desire it. And I promise you, it will bear fruit in your life that you never imagined. Trust him. Don't trust me. Trust the one who wrote this amazing, amazing book. Now, let's look at that. There's, there's something so far in, in this message series I've skipped over, um, mostly because I've run out of time, um, but I want to come back to it. I want you to look there in chapter 1 of 1 Peter at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now, what did they search and inquire in? They searched and inquired in God's word. They searched and inquired in the Torah, in the the books of history, to, to the things that had been revealed already up into the point of their life. They were wanting to know who God is, what his plan was, and, and what he was wanting to do in their life and through their life, just like us. And where they searched was God's word. That should be an instruction for us to begin with. They were inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ, of the anointed one, that's what that literally means, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories or the, the greatness that was to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, what he's saying is that God's purpose and intent was not in the prophet's life so much as it was in those who would discover who Jesus Christ is, those who would follow, the generations to come. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I want you to think about the power of that little statement. What he's saying is that there are things here revealed in God's word that the angels long to comprehend. They who are able to go into the very presence of God because they are are a different kind of being, there are aspects of what salvation is or what relationship is, what redemption is, that they cannot comprehend. But they can see the wonder and the glory of what God is doing, and they long to know more. If you ever think for a moment that heaven will be boring and you won't know what to do, This verse by itself should tell you that there is a longing even amongst the angels who continually come into God's presence who want to know more of the infinite God and what he is doing. They long to look and discover through your life and through my life more about who God is and what he is doing. Now what this passage is telling us is absolutely incredible. Because what it's saying is that, for instance, it talks about the suffering of the, of the Messiah. It talks maybe specifically because he, he quotes from Isaiah. Perhaps Isaiah is who Peter had in mind primarily. Isaiah, who wrote Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, about the, the one anointed by God who would bear our iniquities. 
By his wounds we would be healed. He wrote all these things that point to the cross of Jesus Christ and he realized he wasn't serving himself, he was serving you. And the difficulties and extreme circumstances that Isaiah went through were for our benefit. Isaiah, um, tradition tells us, was sawn in two for his testimony of who God is and what he was commanding his people to do. He went through incredible hardship. He was given great revelation and understanding and insight by the power of the Holy Spirit to see the Messiah hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born at Bethlehem. But the benefactor was you and me. Now, here's something you should, you should take with that. Could it be that the trials and the difficulties that you are encountering are not so much about you, but about what God wants to do through you in touching the hearts and lives of others? You see, there's a radically different viewpoint when we take that perspective on our challenges, on our difficulties, Don't become so focused when you're going through trials, when you're going through illness, when you're going through a a difficult circumstance, whether it's relationships or finances or, or discouragement or defeat or failure, don't become so focused on what you think God has taken from you that you can't see or believe that God will do something through you. That's an important and powerful truth. It's one that I've seen lived out in incredible ways. A couple weeks ago, one of my, my dear friends, um, he died. And he's a man that I, I served on staff with for over a decade. Um, his name's Joel, Joel Allen. He was the, um, the minister of worship at our, our church in Denver. And we lived close to one another. We had a long commute to work because we lived up in the mountains. And so we, we rode almost every day um, to work together, take his kids to school, take my kids to school, and we spent a lot of time together. But Joel got a brain tumor years ago, and it took this guy who was so capable and physically caused great limitation upon what he could do. And yet, out of that limitation... God did something incredibly beautiful in showing the greatness of who he is. And I am 100% convinced that God did far more through his struggle than he ever did through his victories. I watched in that struggle the worship of our congregation be transformed, begin to grow more real, more intimate with the Lord. Because God was doing a work in him and through Joel's difficulties. I've seen the same thing even in our own family. I am 100% convinced that um, we are blessed, Becky and I are blessed with four amazing children and, and their four spouses are all incredible as well. And they have a passion and a love for God that is humbling. But it's not because they listen to their father's sermons. It's because they saw the faith of their mother lived out as she dealt with epilepsy and limitations and brain surgery and trials. Her faithfulness spoke of the goodness and greatness of God in ways that a sermon never, ever can. 
God wants to do the same thing through your life. So let me invite you to change your perspective, to look at things the way the saints of old did, to see that God can use your triumphs and your trials when you come to him as a living stone, as the foundation of your life, he can use those to do amazing things, to reveal his greatness and his goodness. All right. Well, let's go to where I'm supposed to be preaching on today before I'm completely out of time. As you come to him, a living stone. Now, that may seem like a somewhat strange metaphor because stones aren't alive, right? I mean, it's, it's a rock. It's a piece of material. You know, it's granite or sandstone or limestone or whatever form of, of stone it is, but it's not alive. But this one is. This one is something unique. And, it, and if it sounds like it's somewhat strange to you, understand that throughout the scripture, the image of a stone and of a rock appears repeatedly, always pointing to who Jesus Christ is. He is, first and foremost, the living stone, which is the cornerstone of a spiritual temple, God's dwelling place. That's the first dynamic of this living stone that we need to see. He says, for it stands in Scripture, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. What Peter wants us to grab a hold of first is to understand that everything in your life that is good will be built upon one foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. He is the living stone upon which you can build your relationships, your work, your identity, your hope, your courage. Everything about you that gives meaning to life is meant to be built upon that foundation. And we are to continually come to him to build our life, for him to build it. Not to build it upon ourselves, not to build it upon a religion, not to build it upon what someone else says, but to build it upon the person of Jesus Christ himself because he is the cornerstone. And by quoting here from Isaiah 28, verse 16, He is showing Christ's role as the cornerstone that was foretold in scriptures. He points out that God has determined that Christ alone will have this unique position, that he is chosen and is precious, and that he is completely dependable. No one who trusts in him will ever be disappointed. And he's building upon, if, if to his audience, what they would have heard when they heard about this living stone is they would have had all kinds of images come to their mind, one of which was the rock in the wilderness. During the wanderings of Israel, during those 40 years when, because of their disobedience, they could not go into the promised land, they were in the desert and they needed water. And God provided water that came out of a rock a rock that followed them in the desert. And the scripture reveals in the New Testament that that rock was Jesus Christ. Before he was born at Bethlehem, he appeared to to Israel 
as a rock from which flowed living water. Also in the scriptures, we see in the Psalms continually talking about how God is our rock, the rock of our salvation. It means it's a firm foundation that you can trust no matter what happens. And the imagery there on God as a rock is, is similar to that which, you know, we live in a land filled with castles. And the great castles are all built upon solid rock foundations. They chose them because they couldn't be defeated or destroyed. And it's the same picture of the victorious person of Jesus Christ. He is the one we can build everything in our life upon. And the cornerstone points to a a stone that is laid in the foundation upon which you can bring two walls together. And what he is saying when he's saying, I'm building a spiritual temple and you, those who believe in me, are now living stones that I'm going to build into that temple. He's talking about in that wall, bringing together Jews and Gentiles into one new people that are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is fulfilling his promise that in Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And he's going to build his church. And it points to the very statement that Jesus made back in Matthew chapter 16 when he's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they would begin to say, well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're you're this or that. And he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, "You you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers back to Peter and says, you are Peter, which means pebble or a little stone. And upon this rock, what you've just said, I will build my church. The foundation of my church is that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. That is the foundation that the church is built upon. It's not built upon men. It's not built even upon the apostles. It is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And it is indestructible. But that foundation causes a problem. And so he goes on to say the second thing about this stone is that not only is it a cornerstone, it is a rock of offense, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. Jesus made that statement. He's quoting here out of Psalm 118. He makes that proclamation about himself on the day we call Palm Sunday. When Jesus is riding on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem and and the people are gathered there and they're laying their coats down for, for the donkey to walk upon and they're waving the palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quotation from Psalm 118. And Jesus goes and quotes later in the psalm these exact verses saying, yes, this whole psalm points to me. It talks about I am the gate, the way of salvation that it talks about in Psalm 118, but I am also an offense because I threaten the religious leaders of the day who are focused in on their own, on their own agenda and on their own um, advancement and pride. And they reject Jesus because they disobey the word. Even though they knew the word, 
They chose not to live it or to honor it. And that stone they stumbled upon. That's why Jesus was put to death. In fact, it very well may have been those words, that quotation that was kind of the final point that brought the chief priest to decide Jesus must be killed. And they sought out Judas to betray him. And just five days later, they put him on a mock trial. They beat him. They scourged him. And they hung him on a cross to die because he was a rock of offense. Jesus will mess with you. He will not allow your pride to stand. You cannot in your pride come up against God himself. There is only one right response to the God of the universe and that is to humble ourselves before him and to say you alone our God. When we do that, we find a foundation to build everything our life desires upon. We find a joy that is unbreakable, but only when we first bow our hearts and say, you are God and I am not. When we say, not I, but Christ. That's the rock of offense. Very briefly, There's a third image of this living stone. And that image is that of a victorious kingdom. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. I'm not going to take the time to read it today, but I want to invite you to read through this passage. Um, Daniel chapter 2 is a vision given to King Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream, And he's very disturbed by the dream, and he calls all of the wise men that lived within Babylon at that time that was then a world empire, and he called them and and challenged them to tell him what the dream was and then tell him the interpretation. He was wise enough to know that if he simply said, I'll tell you the dream, you tell me the interpretation, he wouldn't know whether it was true or not. And so... He, he said, you tell me what I dreamed. And, and, the, and the wise men realized they were in big trouble because there was no way for them to know what Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had dreamed. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in his, in his fury, pronounces a death sentence on all of the wise men. Now included in those wise men was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of whom were Um, captives from Israel who had been brought to Babylon. And so Daniel and his three friends begin to pray. And they seek the Lord and say, Lord, you know everything. You are God in heaven. Would you reveal to, uh, to me the dream so that we may share it and its meaning with the king? And God does exactly that. And chapter two here describes that whole process and tells us about the dream. And in the dream, What he sees is a statue, and a statue has a head of gold. It has shoulders and arms that are made of silver. It has a stomach and a breast that is made of bronze. It has legs made of iron, and then it has feet that is made of iron mixed with clay. But there in the vision, what happens is to the statue is that there is a stone not made with hands that comes and strikes at the, at the very foot of the statue and turns all of it to dust. 
And what the Lord reveals to Daniel is that this prophecy, this dream, is a picture of what is to come. And it deals with human government and human affairs. And he says, in this dream, what you see are four successive, actually five different kingdoms on the earth, and ultimately the kingdom, which is represented by the the stone, not made with hands, the stone of Jesus Christ. And, And the end of it says that this stone that strikes and destroys the statue that represents these human political powers, it will grow into a mountain that fills the whole earth. It is a promise that God's kingdom will be absolutely victorious. And there in the prophecy, it reveals that this statue represents a progression of kingdoms. The head of gold represented Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. It was an absolute monarchy, and it was um, the first great world power. It would then be defeated by the Medes and the Persians. And just uh, on behalf of my friend Majid, when you think of Medes and Persians, well, Persians is Iran, and the Medes are the Kurds. In case you want to know who those are today, that's who they are. The Medo-Persian Empire was actually the largest empire in terms of ruling over the most number of people percentage-wise on the earth that has ever existed. 44% of all the people on the face of the earth were under the direct rule of the Medo-Persian Empire. And God used them to do some, some miraculous things because the, the temple had been destroyed in Jerusalem. Much of the city had been destroyed under Babylon. And King Cyrus, who was a Mede, or a Kurd, he issues a, de- a decree and sends back resources to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. This, this is being revealed to Daniel who lived through these first two, the establishment of these first two kingdoms. But he writes it in advance. And the scriptures, if you read and study it, you'll discover that the distinctives, the characterizations of, characterizations of these empires fits absolutely perfectly. And the next one that would come, the one that was of bronze, referred to Alexander the Great and the Greek empire that used breastplates of bronze. That was part of their signature as an empire. And then it was followed later by those who used the great iron might and iron weapons of the Roman Empire, the legs of iron. And he gives in advance a historical prediction of the kingdoms of the world and how they're going to come in succession. What God was doing was he was revealing a glimpse of human affairs and prophecy to help us be able to see that God's word can be trusted. And then he says there will be one more kingdom, a kingdom that is a mixture of iron and clay, that somehow is some revival, perhaps, of the Roman Empire, that will be in place when Jesus Christ returns, and he will destroy it, and his kingdom will be fully established. I don't know what that, what that kingdom is. You can go on the internet, and you can find 487 different theories about what it is. I encourage you instead to spend time here and ask the Lord to teach your heart about who he is and allow him to unfold history because the bottom line is this. Jesus Christ wins. He is in control even of 
the craziness of governments and powers. If you're discouraged by the politics of your home nation, don't worry. God is bigger than that. He is a stone not made with hands that will be absolutely victorious. He is undefeatable. And he has given us his word. He has given us the prophecies that point to the person of Jesus Christ, that point to the events of human affairs, to give us assurance and indication that his word is true and we can trust him. We can build everything in our life on him. Church, that is good news. That's the foundation we can trust in. And then he says, based upon that, what we're going to look at next week, I want you to be living stones that I'm going to build together as my church, as a royal priesthood, as a chosen race, as a holy nation, as a holy priesthood. And I want to give you one assignment as we go out. The message is done, but... I want to give you an assignment because there's an insert in your bulletin. If we are called to be a holy priesthood, that means we should be interceding on behalf of others and interceding for God's kingdom. In your sermon notes is a little handout um, called Roadways to Revival. And it's simply a, a tool to take that which is ordinary about our everyday life and make it intentional for prayer. This is a, a little thing I, I made a few years ago and I've kept it on my phone. I have a um, just a copy of it that I keep so I can open it up. When I get on the different forms of, of transportation here in Prague, it prompts me to begin my prayers in, in an intentional way, praying about God's kingdom. When I get on the A-line, I ask for revival. This city needs revival. When I get on the B metro line, I pray for brokenness. Brokenness about in my own heart and life. Brokenness of pride. When I get on the sea line, I pray for the church, that God would bring the church together. He would unite his people, that we would have a love for one another that would be built. And when I'm walking, I'm praying that God will help me walk in integrity, that the person that you see preaching before you is the same person in his home, in his private life, when he's alone, that he'll walk with integrity. And so each of these are just prompts. And if you ride the, the same tram every day and that's the only public transportation you take, that's perfectly fine. Just mix it up, you know? Pretend like, oh, I think we're crossing over the A-line. I'm gonna pray this. Whatever it is, it's just a tool. But I wanna encourage us to use that. You can download it and put it on your phone so you don't have to carry a piece of paper with you. Um, but be intentional. We are a priesthood of believers. And God wants to build us together as living stones in his temple because he is the cornerstone. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's so much more to be able to explore and discover about the greatness of who you are. But Lord, I pray that you would take that which we, we've explored today. And Lord, you would, you would give us a living hope, that you would give us a great assurance that we can build everything in our life, everything that we we do, our relationships, our ministry, our families, our careers, Lord, our reputations, everything is designed to be built upon the greatness of who you are. Lord, forgive us for trying to build upon the sand of self.
Forgive us of the pride that gets in the way. And Lord, today, may we determine, may we choose to seek more of you, to keep coming to you and ask you to build us up into who you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' great name, our cornerstone. Amen.